What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Abolition. The word has long been a point of division, sometimes contention in communities, among criminal justice reformers, sometimes even among abolitionists ourselves. Following the summer rebellions of 2020 after George Floyd was murdered, work that had been happening for decades came to the forefront, or some say the mainstream, including how we practice abolition now. That and so much more is the focus of this morning's guest's new book. Patrice Cullors is a New York Times bestselling author, educator, artist, and abolitionist from Los Angeles, California, co-founder and former executive director of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. Patrice has been on the front lines of abolitionist organizing for 20 years. In 2020, she signed an overall production deal with Warner Brothers, where she uplifts Black stories, talent, and creators that are transforming the world of art and culture. She is my friend, my sister, my comrade. She is with us this morning, and her latest <laughs> book is 12 Steps to Changing Yourself in the World, an abolitionist handbook. She is also the best-selling author of When They Call You a Terrorist, which if you have not read, I strongly suggest you do. Good morning, Patrice. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Kat. So good to be on with you and on this show. You're like one of my favorite people. (laughs) You are like one of my favorite people. And we've been waiting to have this conversation for a minute. I'm so glad that it's happening. So the first question I want to ask you, and and not like, you know, um, in a perfunctory manner, but like for real, for real, how are you? (laughs) Uh, these days, it's such a complicated question. Um, I am I'm tender, vulnerable, um, and also like um, I'm also strong, but not in the like you know stereotypical black woman sense of the words the way that you strong for us. <laughs> but like I feel strength in my in my back, and I feel strength in my feet and I feel a lot of uh gratitude for our ancestors today a lot of gratitude Mm. the second book uh 12 steps to changing yourself in the world an abolitionist handbook one of the things that struck me Patrice before we get in sort of the the content of the book um is the accessibility Right. So as I was making my way through this, I remembered making my way through when they call you a terrorist and just finding it so easy to access the language. And not just because I speak the same language, right? Not because I'm a practicing abolitionist, not like just easy to access, to digest. Like you you don't feel like you're being talked at. It feels like a conversation. And I'm wondering, and my guess is that's intentional. And so I'd, I'd like you to talk a bit about that choice. And, and also, I guess that segues into your hopes for how people will use this book as an actual handbook and not just something pretty that sits on our shelf. Love that. Um, yeah, you know, I've been practicing and reading that abolition for now more than half my life. And I really wanted to write a book that was an accessible handbook, something that both modern day abolitionists, but also people who are on their journey, their abolitionist journey could go to reference, um, use as a, as a practice space. And I was very, you know, I was very interested in trying to support people in the how of abolition because 
what is, um, you know, what happens, especially with abolitionist framework, is it's uh, really, really academic and theory heavy. And I love a good, you know, theory heavy document uh, book. Uh, and also I love being able to have something that people can reference and use as a as a tool for their families. Like I see, you know, parents and children reading this together and I've had lots of parents tell me that they're reading it with their child. I see this as an opportunity for organizations to sit with this text and their orgs. I had a beautiful conversation yesterday with Dignity and Power Now and mm. a bunch of local Los Angeles-based grassroots orgs about the book. And it was, the questions were just different because these are, you know, community organizers, grassroots organizers. And uh, this book is really aimed at grassroots organizers. This book is aimed at the grassroots artists, the community artists, the public artists. Uh, and I felt like, you know, I was really missing a text that I could go to. I use these um, steps all the time, all the time. <laughs> Maybe talk about that a little bit later about how these steps have been applicable for you. You know, um, you're, you said something in in your answer there that that is going to have me ask a question that I, I I thought about, but I didn't have on on my little cheat sheet here, and that's that you appreciate theory heavy content and books. And the other thing that struck me, Patrice, and, and like for real, for real, right? You're, you're my friend. You're my sister. I know you pretty well. I, I hadn't thought of you um, until this book, and actually looking at the depth of citations and mm. research. You're an academic. <laughs> I am. I you am. Talk about that part of your life. I, d I don't think I'm the only one. Well, I know I'm not, right? The only one that's like, may maybe doesn't have full appreciation about that, that side of Patrice Colors. Thanks for saying that. Um, you know, I, I really identify like as a scholar, um, as an abolitionist scholar. And oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, and I've used academia as a place to be able to advance that scholarship. Um, but I've, I've, I've felt like a scholar since I was a young person. You know, I'm, I'm an avid reader. I always have been. Um, I was, you know, I was the nerd in my classrooms. Uh, I, I was, you know, very blessed to go on to, to study at some amazing community colleges and then go on to study philosophy and religion at UCLA and then got my fine arts degree at USC. And every step of the way, it was, you know, for me, um, books in particular have always been a place of reprieve um, and respite. And, um, and so, and also like deep um, research and being able to dig in to different things, um, being able to dig into uh, other people's scholarship around the topic. This was so beautiful to write because I got to quote so many of the people that I love and care about, so many people that I'm big fans of. Uh, and, you know, I truly feel like I'm part of a long legacy of abolitionists that obviously date back to the abolition of chattel slavery. Um, and we are just trying to evolve the conversation for the current context and you know where I'm really see my my contribution here is talking about abolition as something that we live as a daily belief system not just something that we're 
moving towards, you know, when it comes to uh, getting rid of prisons and police and court and surveillance and detention centers, but like, how do we actually live an abolitionist practice? One of the things that I find so beautiful uh, about this piece of our conversation is that like oftentimes in, in our movement, right, or, or any movement for that matter, you have the folks that study, right, the theory, and then you have the folks that are fighting for the practice. But yes. the, there, there's rarely the intersection, which I, I feel is where we keep, you know, sort of missing um, the mark. And I'm, I, I'm finding more and more often to, to my chagrin that the art you know, of, of political education, of political study um, mm-hmm. that was so critical, right, to, to, to movements uh, of our elders and ancestors is just lacking in our movement. Um, and, and it's almost as if Googling things on social media has replaced poorly and effectively mm-hmm. uh, what would have historically been, you know, PE, right? That's exactly right. You know, I come out of a tradition of deep political education. Um, I mean, deep, deep political education, you know, since I was 16 years old and I'm going to be 39 this year. And uh, I think I almost took it for granted, you know, that like every organizer has political education training or that every organizer understands organizing the same. That's not true. (laughs) Or Um, has organizing training at all. That's exactly right. Yes. Which is, which is what I mean by understands organizing, saying maybe I was being too kind. You were. (laughs) Too generous rather. Um, But you know, it's like, I talked, I've talked about this a lot, Um, you know, probably more years ago uh, when, when the world started to get to know who I was, but an organizer is, is a skilled position. And, you know, you don't send a, do- a surgeon in to do surgery without being trained. Same with the organizer. There's really, gr- there's some pretty serious implications to have untrained people trying to, quote, organize people. Um, and we've seen some of the consequences of that. Have we? Have, have we now, Kat? Absolutely. So um, I, I think, you know, the, the role of political education, and this is like an important note for people who are listening, is not to say that, you know, uh, organizing or theory needs to be out of reach. In fact, I was taught, you know, as a young, queer, raised, poor Black woman, that us having knowledge, us being trained, us having political education was in- incredibly, incredibly liberatory. And it was because I was taught by society that I didn't deserve to read, you know, high level philosophy, philosophy, but I was actually taught by you know, my org- my organizing family that, no, you deserve this. Like, this is for you. This is very important. These are important tools for the work that you're going to do ahead. And, the, and they have been. And so I really encourage folks that I'm very interested to talk to a new generation and, and very much considering, and I'll, I'll share this on the show just as a quick blip, blurt, blip but I'm very much considering um, creating a more formal political education experience for the next generation of activists and organizers because the the lack of it the gap has has made uh has created a lot of dis-ease um i think in our movements um yes please a vote for that and i i would say not just the next generation right this generation um truly and 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 what we're missing is like the right is training organizers Right, they're investing in that. They 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 study, and and 
don't know. I, I, I could go down this rabbit hole for a minute, but um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us along because I'm in conversation with Patrice Cullors about her new book, 12 Steps to Changing Yourself and the World, an Abolitionist Handbook. Patrice, the, the question every abolitionist hates being asked, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I think it's important. Define abolition from your perspective. <laughs> I really do this quite simply. Um, abolition is the getting rid of police, prisons, jails, uh, all law enforcement, court systems, detention centers, and surveillance as we currently know it. That's what it is. It's getting rid of that. And it is more than that because abolition is how we show up for each other. It's the culture that we're building. Many of us don't understand that the carceral culture that we live in is based on punishment, revenge, and vengeance. And that uh, we are actually trying to, when I say we abolitionists, are trying to build a culture that's centered in care, love, compassion, dignity. That's what abolition is. Love, care, compassion, and dignity. That is what abolition is. Why do you think that that word, I mean, just the very word, scares certain pockets of our communities so much? Well, we've had some really excellent propaganda that has influenced an entire generation, uh, many generations, to feel fully um, and believe fully that police presence means safety, even if we don't even if we don't agree logically in our bodies, many people believe when the cops are around, we feel safer. Uh, and, you know, I, I think a lot about the 80s and 90s and the rise of law enforcement um, and the rise of, um, you know, the crime bill and three strikes and all of these policies that were that are carceral policies that you know, created and, and, and put an entire generation of young people and their family members in prison, uh, killed an entire generation of young people, destroyed communities. And uh, I think that, you know, our job as organizers is to reframe what safety actually is, because for so long, law enforcement has been the ones to frame it. And for so long, elected officials have been in the pockets of law enforcement. And for so long, uh, we've been afraid, and when I say we, I mean I mean Black people, have been afraid to truly embrace abolition. And I think that we've seen in the last decade that this, uh, this lack of embrace of abolition, all it does is creates more room for law enforcement to be the single apparatus to deal with every single social ill as We've seen with, you know, Biden's new budget, which is what up to 32 billion going to local law enforcement when that is antithetical to what our movement has called for. But it's going to take all of us, Kat. It's going to take every single person, Black, Asian, uh, Indigenous, you know, Latinx, um, all of us. It's going to take every community to say, hey, this is not actually what public safety is. Talk a bit, Patrice, about how we get there. And, and I think I, I'm asking that question in, in the context of this massive 
avalanche, right, uh, of propaganda that we're in the middle of of now. And I, I can't prove it. I haven't found the documents, but I know um, just by watching, right, there there is a national coordinated strategic strategy and direct response to the gains that have been made, right, in conversations about abolition, in practicing abolition now while, while creating, you know, alternative models to crisis that don't lead with law enforcement, Um and, and, and the backlash and then the manipulation of our people, their trauma, their fear, right, as we're, we're living in the conditions of the, the economic pandemic. Talk about wading through that, fighting through that, organizing through that. You know, <laughs> I think what's important, and I'm, I'm trying to continue to um, remind myself, especially as someone who's been at the center of the backlash or being be, being treated poorly in this moment, you know, to make a point uh, for other people's narratives is that this is a part, this is part for the course uh, and that backlash is going to happen and that it's less about the backlash and more about how we're prepared for it. And that has been um, incredibly important for me, incredibly grounding for me. I think, you know, backlash occurs when a group of people, when a movement are being effective. Um, And efficacy, you know, in the face of challenging white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism means that that whole beast is going to use all its resources to try to squash the efficacy. Um, And I think the more we understand that, the more we're able to give more space and room to the possibilities on the other side of backlash. Uh, This is, you know, a question not just for us uh, and our movement, but it's also a challenge to elected officials who were, you know, the first ones to say, not all of them, but a lot of them, the first ones to want to align and support you know, the, the larger movement, the Black liberation movement, the defund movement, and then, uh, you know, any and, and, and at the drop of a dime can, can totally uh, retract and uh, act as if we weren't the ones to help them get into office in the first place. So this is also, you know, a really a, a, a firm call out to elected officials to um, stand up and to rise up and to also be an alignment because at the end of the day, honestly, Kat, this is about people's lives. This is about people being able to live full, dignified lives. And so many of our people have not had that ability. The tw- 12 principles in, in the book, Patrice, uh, courageous conversations, respond versus react. Nothing is fixed. Say yes to imagination. Forgive actively, not passively. Allow yourself to feel Commit to not harming or abusing others. Practice accountability. Embrace non-reformist reform. I love that one. Build community. (laughs) Value interpersonal relationships and fight the U.S. state rather than make it stronger. And we're we're not going to have time to go through all of them. I'm going to bounce around, um, actually, to to, uh, a a couple. Um, But but I'm going to start with courageous conversations. Um, What do you mean by that? I mean that in order to do this thing that we're calling abolition, we have to show up in our most honest, vulnerable, courageous selves 
with the people we love the most and we're doing the work with alongside the work with. Um, this is critical because in the, my experience uh, building organizations and institutions, movements, being with inside families, um, silence, uh, opaqueness have always been uh, a real challenge to getting people's needs met, to healing, to transformation. Um, that to me is is really important. You know, that to me um, is really necessary. Uh, and courageous conversations are both the conversations you have in your interpersonal relationships. Um, sometimes a courageous conversation is confronting a loved one about harm that was caused or confronting them about a harm you caused and, you know, wanting to be accountable. Sometimes a courageous conversation is about something really joyful and exciting, but may feel really scary. But also courageous conversations are about how we um, show up for the broader conversations, how we show up for the larger conversations, uh, how we show up for the ways in which um, uh, we have to challenge the government. Uh, there's a reason why I put Mamie Till in, in this because she had a courageous conversation with all of us, you know, the folks who were alive about her son, Emmett Till. Um, she, she made the choice to have an open casket funeral uh, and a move of courage to expose uh, the ugliness of white supremacy. And so courageous conversations are both, yes, you know, what we do personally in our own lives, but also it's what we do publicly. One of the courageous conversations I want us to have is about the relentless attacks on Black women, and particularly Black women who sacrificed their lives to step into the to leadership. Um, but more importantly, the courageous conversation I want us to have is about the deafening silence of movement when it comes time to defend them. And since I'm talking about you, so th th three part question, because <clears throat> I because I think it's strategic, and and I'm wondering if you do too the the choice to go for Black women particularly. The second part of that question is why is the silence dangerous? Yeah, and then if if you don't mind, you know, then then talking a bit about what it's like for you to to hear so loudly that deafening silence. You know, it's really, it's really bizarre. I'll start there. Um, and and when I had Twitter, I don't I don't use Twitter anymore because of how terrible that space was. But I remember writing a tweet and saying, "It's as if everybody is watching black women be jumped on the street and nobody's helping them." You know what I mean? And so I really do think that what Black women often have to do is show up for ourselves. We usually have to create, you know, our own campaigns. Um, we have to bring in our own people to back us up and support us and fight for us and protect us. And it's usually a campaign. It's very rare that it's organic, that Black women receive organic support. It's very rare. I mean, let's look at Meghan Markle, for goodness sake, you know, probably mm. 
one of the most light-skinned, you know, Black women married into the royal family who could not catch a break, in fact, was, you know, terrorized by the media. And that's sort of like, um, if that's what she's experiencing, imagine what every Black woman is experiencing on a daily basis. Um, There's not a day that goes by that I don't receive uh, hate mail, that I don't receive terrible... um, humiliating words from trolls, you know, talking about my weight, talking about certain features on my face. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, sometimes I wonder, Kat, like, why am I on social media? (laughs) It's just another space to be harassed. It's another space to, you know, to be controlled. And so on a daily basis for me, it depends, you know, it depends. I'm much better than I was last year. And, you know, in just a couple of weeks, it'll be the year anniversary when the right-wing media leveraged an entire attack against me and my family. And, you know, I, I think a lot about that. I'm still living and it's only been a year. Uh, and and there was, there's a lot of PTSD and trauma from that time. And I just, I, I, I yearn to talk about it publicly where people really get what happened and what happens to black women, specifically black women in the spotlight. Well, why don't we take a, a, a moment and, and do some of that. Um, t- talk about what happened to, to you, Patrice. And, 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 and as, as much as you, you want to or willing, right. Um, what it did to you. You know, I, I've thought a lot about so many Black women during this time, like Black women who've been accused of things publicly, have been humiliated. I could not watch the um, hearings, the Katanji uh, Katanji hearings. I couldn't do it, Kat, because it was so vicious to witness and that, like, it was acceptable. The normalization of berating and humiliating uh, black women is actually really disturbing. Um, and it happens so often. Uh, and it happens so, um, you know, yeah, it just happens so often. And by so many people, we're all bystanders of it. And so I, I think that that's what I've been sitting with the most, you know, how people are bystanders of the ways in which black women have been how it, how it's normalized to berate, humiliate, abuse, kill black women, and I'm talking about all black women, including black trans women. You in particular, your 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 personal life, right? Uh, picked apart, um, accusations levied at you with absolutely no proof or justification. Um, and, and then silence, and, and you talked sort of, like, you sort of breezed through, uh, sis, when you talked about getting hate mail every single day. Um, I get that kind of mail, too, mm-hmm. and, and, and not, not, I'm sure, not by any uh, uh, lengths the same volume as you. It is not really a breeze-through thing, though, right? Like, that, that, that stuff impacts mental and emotional. Like, how many times can you be called the B-word before... That part. <laughs> 
right? Before it cracks. Um, and, and the work itself is hard enough, right? right? Like dealing with death every single day, right? That's hard enough. Fighting for the liberation of black people every day. That's hard enough. But then this stuff piles on on top of it. And Patrice, you and I, you know, a lot of the work that we've done together and a lot of the conversations that we've had have been around mental health, right? And the fact that there actually are no real resources, right? Especially right. To, to address black people's mental health. Um, the, 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 it takes a toll, yes? And, and what is the fight to stay centered, grounded like? Yeah, it's, um, it, when, when I have folks like you um, and folks who are in my corner supporting me on a daily basis, like I feel much more grounded. I feel much more like myself. I think it's the times where, where I don't feel like I'm in community, which is not right now, uh, when I feel much more far away from joy or love or care. I'm Kat Brooks. I'm in conversations with Patrice Colors about her new book, uh, 12 Steps to Changing Yourself in the World Abolitionist Handbook. Um, another principle in the book, uh, Patrice, is uh, forgive actively, not passively. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about what you mean by that. And, and then, of course, segue, right? Like, because that's what I've seen you do. I've, I've actually seen you sort of apply these principles to uh, a situation that a, that a lot of us could, couldn't even imagine uh, yeah. living through, right? Like not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and you persevering, I guess is the word, or striving um, to, to live in principles like this. Forgive actively, not passively. Yeah. This is the hardest, it's the hardest one to write for me because you know, forgiveness has been framed from like a very conservative Christian context. Uh, we can think about the ways that, you know, Christian conservatives use slavery, you know, and for enslaved Africans to forgive their slave owners and, you know, keep keep by their side. And so that's not the forgiveness I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about a forgiveness that is really centered in your own personal transformation, a forgiveness that is actually and truly about uh, releasing the ways that uh, when we aren't forgiving um, can be incredibly toxic to our systems. And so when I say forgive actively, not passively, I am talking about what it will do for you personally, um, some of us have to forgive people that are no longer alive. Some of us have to forgive people that we never want to be around again. Forgiveness doesn't mean we don't. Uh, uh, forgiveness doesn't mean we relinquish boundaries. Um, but that forgiveness does mean that we open ourselves up to the possibility of something on the other side. You know, when I've forgiven, I've seen so much more about myself and others. And so that's where this forgiveness chapter lands. That's super beautiful. I mean, that was like my pathway to becoming an abolitionist actually was through 
forgiveness. Because uh, for a long time, I wouldn't call myself an abolitionist uh, because yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm a survivor of sexual assault and I, as a child. And I was like, I don't care what you do with him, right? Like in my head, I was like, you could throw him under the jail and feed him a piece of bread once a week. Um, and so I wouldn't, I just wouldn't. Uh, and it was actually through my comrades, right? Really pushing me there. And, and what was actually being served? Um, either me, for me or right for right for 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 folks that are locked in in these cages, um, in those kinds of conditions, and it was ultimately the pathway to forgiveness. Now, I mean, I don't want to be around him. I don't want to see him. Right, none of that stuff. But letting go of that thing that was actually eating me, um, yeah, you know, opened me up to 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 being able to fully embrace um, abolitionist practice, um, and and was a super big blessing. Right. Was, right. It's super big, right? It's, it's super big. T- totally trans transformative. Um you, principle eight is is practice accountability. And, and uh, you talk about um our, our brother Kanye. Um and you talk um you talk specifically about around the Taylor Swift uh, incident, right? And talk about that actually the way that he addressed that situation was sort of the trifecta of, of the right way to do it. Brother Kanye's in the media a lot again now um, around a bunch of other stuff. And I, I've really been struggling actually with even the way, uh, and I'm, I'm so open to, de- to, to debate around this. We haven't talked about it, so I don't know where you sit. Yeah. I watched, I watched that Netflix special. Yeah. Tell me. And I was okay with the first two episodes, right? I mean, they, they were interesting. I felt like I was learning some stuff. The third episode, where he was sort of really in the the height of um, his, you know, his mental health crisis, um, I'm not sure how often he was sharing our reality. I'm not sure that he was sharing enough of our reality to give consent yeah. for that much of right his his issues t- to go onto an international stage and then i felt like it was used to further beat him for behavior that is a direct result of his mental health issues yeah and i've really struggled like even our folks right folks that are in this work with me like i've mm-hmm. heard them say things and i'm like the only difference between Kanye and the folks that we say that we're waking up every single day and fighting for is that they just throw our, you know, he's too rich to just be thrown into jail because we don't want to look at his, his, his behavior that makes us uncomfortable. Um, so I've been really like not happy with this narrative or how this stuff is playing out. Yeah. You know, it's so complicated because there's so many things happening here. One that he's a billionaire. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's that. Um, to that, you know, I looked at, I watched Genius and was like, oh, he's kind of always been like this. <laughs> uh, and it was exacerbated, I think, with, you know, extreme mania and depression and then being a billionaire. Well, and um, the, 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 the nutso culture of, of Hollywood, right? I mean, I just, I think exactly like right. people miss that. Like that place exactly makes you right. insane. Yes. Celebrity culture, Hollywood culture is really toxic. Um, and then, you know, it's never good when someone's able to get their way 
almost all the time. Like that's actually not healthy for yourself. And so I, I really do, you know, it's so interesting that this, that, you know, that's the example that's in that chapter, given now what he, how he's evolved, (laughs) but it, this is what happens, you know, when you're not in your abolitionist practice, when you're not in a practice around being accountable, when you don't have people around you that you're listening to, um, to say, hey, you know, um, accountability is not just saying I'm accountable. Accountability is also saying, uh, is changing your behavior. Um, so that is also interesting to me, you know, when it comes to yay, because his behavior doesn't seem to change. Um, and I have a lot of compassion for him. I have a lot of compassion for a lot of people. This is just my personality. So um, it's kind of how I I operate. And it's I've been like this forever. Um, and also I can see the ways in which his behavior just creates so much toxicity and distrust around like, is this man going to change? Is he going to evolve? Is he going to, you know, not say sorry? Is he going to say sorry one day and the next day do the very exact exact same thing, which is truly what ends up happening? And that is not actually accountability. Um, Changing behavior is accountability. I wish we could go through all the principles. Um, the, the, there's so much juicy stuff in in, in the book. I, I'm going to jump though to the last principle um, because the the chapter opens at least with um, stuff I really want to talk to you about, and that's art. Um, the principle is fight the U.S. state rather than make it stronger. Um, and there's a quote in there. It says, our art has been part of what has kept us whole for millennia, and particularly since we were brought here as enslaved people. I want you to talk about your art, Patrice, and how it keeps you whole. Um, my art is critical. <laughs> my art is necessary for, like, my own personal survival. Um, it's a real... Uh, deep um, spiritual practice, not just, you know, something that I do, like I don't just make things or perform things. Um, So that's, you know, very important for folks to understand. Um, And um, my art is uh, a place where it's an extension of my abolitionist practice and values. Um, and that feels really important, um, and feels really necessary to name. Um, you know, I think when I think about art and abolition, I think about the ways in which, uh, artists can really help call in an abolitionist culture, presence and future. Um, it's through art that you get to communicate so many things. I think a lot about, you know, uh, Ava, DuVernay's 13th and how it really changed the conversation around how we understood did slavery actually end? (laughs) Um, What is this new thing, this new system of incarceration and how is it it part of a legacy of chattel slavery? And so that means the abolitionist movement hasn't ended. And so let's be abolitionists. Let's be abolitionists to 
challenge, you know, this current carceral state. So yeah, you know, I think, I think that that's how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, the, the reimagine, right. Reimagine public safety, that, that whole campaign, um, I thought a lot about art and our and and ourselves as artists in, inside of that because artists also we the artists we help you see, right that which does not exist yet and so there's a particular way in which um, our artists contribute to to our movement and and I think we need to make way more room for, um, particularly in this moment when when we're trying to take some pretty big steps, um, to to get to where we're trying to go. That's right. That's right. You've stepped down, Patrice, as director of Black Lives Matter Global. What is life like for you now? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent a lot more time with my kid. I'm making a lot of art. Um, I help run an art gallery and, and studio in Inglewood called the Crenshaw Dairy Mart. I'm incubating a bunch of really amazing projects. I am thinking a lot about health and wellness. I always have, but thinking about it a lot now. Yeah, it's really, really, I, I, I hate that I had to leave the way I did. Um, and as you know, Kat, you know, I've been, I had been in BLM forever um, and was always like, all right, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to go. And, and I, and I hate that the way it, I left was, you know, in some ways on, on someone else's timeline and, you know, uh, with, with a lot of shame and humiliation, but I'm glad that I took that leap because I feel like maybe not to say that I, I would have never ever left if that happened, but it would have taken, taken a lot. It was very dedicated. I am a very dedicated organizer, very loyal to institutions that I built. So that I build and built. So yeah, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm grateful for being able to take take that leap um, and, and now to be living my life uh, very differently. Uh, there's still, you know, bull. I know I can't curse on air, <laughs> but that's just, that's, that's what happens. But I feel much more at ease. All right, Patrice, final words. Anything I haven't asked you that you would like to, to close us out with? Abolition is the only way. It's the only way we're going to get out of this very big mess that we're in, that the carceral state has really put us in. And so I just really want to call for people uh, when we're thinking about interpersonal conflict, when we're thinking about campaigns we're leading, when it comes to all types of things, we're thinking of the war in Ukraine. Um, abolition really is the answer. Uh, the answer for so many different conflicts, harms, um, practices of accountability, uh, places for joy. Um, that is uh, important, important when we think about abolition. All right, Patrice Colors. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kat. You're the best. Mm, you're the best. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. 
The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. We all we got, fam.